Today we have a short little, uh, I guess you can call it a little interview, a little dis- little discussion, a little chat, uh, where I'm sitting here with Mubin Vaid. And I've always told people, it must be Mubin Wa'id, right? <laughs> I mean, the Arabic of this is, must be Mubin Wa'id, right? That's the original. And people get bothered sometimes. Huh. Uh, and you could tell me if I'm wrong, but people get bothered when you actually... I guess, correct their, uh, uh, what's been Persianized or Indianized right. Arabic. But I just like to guess that, you know, what is the origin of this name? So I think it's Waid, right? I have no clue. I mean, it's gotta be, what else yeah. can it be? I, I'll tell you, I don't get bothered. I, uh, well, you, you got a really cool last name. Okay. I mean, you're like one <laughs> syllable for being Darth, Darth Vader, right? Yeah, yeah, so it is a cool last name. That's actually how I introduce myself for work meetings. But uh, Actually, you know, if you went into some other fields, you would just remove the Mubin completely yeah. and just be Vader. <laughs> yeah, it's almost already Hollywood type of name. Right, I'll tell you a funny story. I remember when I was a, uh, I was a student at the Mahad in, uh, in Virginia, and I had a teacher, and she called me Munib. Munib, okay. Munib. And, that, and I didn't have the heart to correct her. Yeah. And she called me Munib the entire year. Oh my gosh. The entire year. And you got I didn't kidding. and I didn't have so when you talk about people getting offended by mispronunciation, yeah. I just I oh roll with gosh. it. Munib <laughs> has a good meaning too, mashallah. And so, <laughs> so you went to the Mahad and you had a teacher there. And yeah. what did she teach you? Oh, it was Arabic. Arabic. So, tell Arabic. tell us about life in the Mahad. So you must have been how old were you when you went? Uh, I started when I was I was in the uh, full time program. When I was eighteen, and so I was in college at that time. So and so, oh, so you dropped out of college? No, so I you did set up, both. Yeah, so the full time program was from nine to one, Monday through Friday, mm-hmm. and then I just set up classes to be in the evening. Good. And what year was that? Oh, I'd have to go back and check. <clears throat> two thousand probably two or three. How is that? I thought it shut down right after nine eleven. No, it shut down. It stayed in. It's. It was open. Probably until maybe 0405 is when it fully shut down. Oh, okay. After 9-11, a number of the teachers left. Yeah. And so I, I think that was because they were there on um, like a diplomat visa. Oh, I see. I see. And so I'm not, I'm not sure. Just never I'm not sure fully what that sort of entails, but I believe the diplomat visa gives them some privileges and yeah. protects them against the, you know, forms of prosecution yeah. and scrutiny that they can fall under and so a number of them left mm. the country immediately after that mm. which i mean makes sense right if you're here from saudi arabia um, so in 1998 no yeah. 1997 yeah 1998 yeah. i decided you know i'm going to quit uh, college i'm going right. to quit university and i'm going to go and i'm going to study and <clears throat> we didn't know anything so the obvious location is you'll go where everyone else is going, which is Mecca and Medina. Okay. So I signed up for the University of Medina. And then uh, someone there, a Saudi there, he said, no, 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 University of Medina. See, we had a friend who's a Saudi there. who well, my, work, my mom actually worked as a physician in Mecca for a while. Okay, Michelle. She had some old contacts and old friends. They then said, no, no, University of Medina, that's for the foreigners, right, to go. Okay. The real education happens in the University of uh, Umar Qura in Mecca. Okay. So you got to go to Mecca. So I said, all right, fine, I'll, I'll go there. And I, uh, they signed me up. They got me accepted there and everything. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. Then uh, my dad went there, and he noticed that uh, all these people, you know, they're a bit um, harsh. 
and that he's like, nah, I don't think he's going to work out there, right? Because uh, you know, we come from like a really basic people. We're not like really strict and it was like average, I would say. Egyptians okay. are always within the average, right? Right. So he was like, nah, it's not going to work. So we came back here. I was like, well, what are we going to do? We said, well, they have a branch in Virginia. So we went down there, and there was a Tunisian scholar. Who was okay. it? Remind me of the name. Sheikh Hossein Shawat. Sheikh Hossein Yeah. So we get to Sheikh Hossein Shawat, yeah. and Sheikh Hossein Shawat uh, tells us that, uh, what are you doing? Uh, yeah. You're like a doctor. You have a company, right? And Or, you know, you're, uh, you're going to put your kid in this program for four years. He's going to come out with nothing, right? Yeah. He'll learn, but there's no no one recognizes degree. It's only yeah. us who recognize a degree. Mm-hmm. So he said, "Go back to university, uh, take your degree, and then study abroad in the uh, in the summers." In the summer, okay. So that's actually what I ended up doing, and when I did, I ended up doing that. And but it was Hossein Shawat. So for a while, I was actually about to register full time for the math. Yeah, well, you know, he probably had. A- their reason to be concerned. A number of the students that were full-time in the Mahat, well, I'll take a step back. I think, if I think back to the people that were full-time students in the Mahat, I'd say the majority of them were just retirees, right? People passing the time, pretty much. Exactly, right? The older people who were retired um, from their profession and were just passing time in sitting through Islamia classes and fifth classes and all Uh, of that. And then there was sort of a minority of them that gave up their careers or whatever and made sacrifices to become full-time students. Mm. And they became imams afterwards? No, some of them did, right? But uh, a number of them just went a year or two struggling to live life. And they, lived, in, they, they lived in apartments with you know, <clears throat> four, five, six people in a one-bedroom apartment and those. working sort of jobs at places like Home Depot and the grocery store and trying to get evening hours. And it was tough. And I, I knew brothers there that were students that spent probably close to a month living out of their car, wow. right? And just sleeping in the trunk of their sort of the back area of a van. Well, that so, remains to be the problem with um, yeah. with serious Islamic education and scholarship is that there's no economy whatsoever. Yeah, uh, there's yeah. no unlike like you for example you're an IT guy right yeah so you're an IT guy and you do your study and and, and you know exactly where you're going yeah uh, it's more predictable it's predictable yeah <laughs> and scholarship will not take off the Muslim community yeah. in any part of the world never takes off and never gets solid unless their scholarship is solid right and scholarship will never be solid unless it has an economy behind it which an economy means you know exactly the trajectory from when you begin studying to when you're done, right? You know the, traje- uh, the trajectory, and you know uh, where where you're gonna where what kind of a job you have, what kind of salary comes in, right? And it's respectable, and it's something you could retire with, right? Enough that you make enough money that you you have a, a, a predictable forty year career, right? Mm-hmm. And that doesn't exist, and and if that doesn't exist. Then the scholars are the training of the scholars. No one's going to invest in it. Yeah, the best and brightest won't go into it, and then the community doesn't benefit. Well, I, I think <clears throat> if you just look at scholarship, the majority of available jobs fall in a single sector, which is working in masjids. Yeah, 
And if you're competing for masjid positions, well, the majority of masjids can't afford high salary positions, right? That's true. And the ones that can often elect to go cheap. Mm -hmm. And that's simply a function of them being able to import people from overseas at a fraction of the price with the incentive of sponsoring those people. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes the people that come from overseas are actually a lot easier to work with mm -hmm. because they don't carry some of the baggage that people who have grown up here do, where people who have grown up here expect to live a certain standard, right? That's they have totally a standard true. of living, they have a standard of, or they have a certain pre-existing expectation of mm -hmm. their authority in the community and their standing and their sort of place in the community vis-a-vis -vis the board, vis-a-vis -vis other competing interest groups in the community. Connection to family and board. Exactly. Yeah. And so... It's hard to fire. People who have been born and raised in this country and go into becoming imams tend to not fare well. That's true. Oftentimes the tenure ends up being pretty short, whereas people who have come from overseas, they'll last 20, 30 years in a masjid pretty easily. It's, yeah, you're right about that. 20, 30 years pretty easily. Yeah. And so there, there's that, right? So the majority of open positions are simply within the masjid space. Outside of masjids, there are very few openings where a person can actually get employed. Now, a number of these positions don't give the types of amenities that anybody would expect from a job these days. So mm -hmm. the amount of paid time off that a person will receive in a masjid or any Islamic institution is pretty limited. Mm -hmm. If a person receives two weeks a year paid time leave from a Muslim institution, that's pretty impressive, yeah. right? That's that's actually, as far as we're concerned, that's a top five Muslim <laughs> institution that has a lot of money behind them yeah. because they can afford to do that. Now, those same institutions won't have maternity and paternity leave that's paid, right? Probably. So as companies offer those types of things, right? Hey, you had a kid. As a male, you get two weeks off. As a female, you get you know, up to three months, right? And some companies are going longer and longer and offering longer incentives, and even paternity leave now is becoming a thing, right? More and more companies are offering extended paternity leave um, that's fully paid, right? What's your opinion on that? What, paternity and maternity leave? Yeah. Well... Like, what is a guy doing? I want to know. <laughs> like, I, I can get that he takes half a day so that he would stay up, help, help out in the middle of the night, right? That's if she's bottle feeding. This is if she's breastfeeding, he has nothing to do. It depends on the pregnancy, Right. Yeah. So if it was a C-section, then he's going to be doing a lot more because oftentimes you know, she the wife, yeah. she's, she's not functional, right, for some period yeah. of time and she needs to recover. If it was a natural birth and then if there were complications, right, caring, things like mm -hmm. that occur. So still, there's going to be a lot of things the husband will need to do. Yeah. I think more than anything else, even if it was a natural birth, <clears throat> no complications, an easy delivery and you're out of the hospital within 24 hours, Part of it is just being there for the first days of your son or your daughter, right? Okay, so the two or three days, days right? Uh, I, I think I think being there for the first month or two months. Month, yeah, a month off from work. No, I, I don't think he, I don't think it has to be there. I think it's a nice perk to have, right? Companies that offer it. I well, take anyone it. I would, would take like some time off, yeah. of course, right? I mean, to say but, that I can literally spend the day with my newborn for the first month of their life and help around the house, especially if you have more than one kid. Right, and uh -huh. take, help take care of the drop-offs and pickups and all that. Then, well, once you're now having a second and third kid, that changes the picture. Of course, yeah. Which, but, which is less common, right? Yeah. Which is less common these days. People are having fewer kids, but still, yeah. I mean, that 
people do still have more than one kid. So. See, believe it or not, it's as horrible as it, as it sounds. I'm actually really a big supporter of yeah. guys spending as much time as they can at home. That's why I think working at home is a huge blessing because yeah. you give your kids a lot more emotional stability. Yeah, right? they get a lot more emotional stability, and a lot, uh, and that you can't take that lightly. So, yeah. all right. So now let's get back to the message. Yeah. What about okay? So message. Firstly, the message job is not even scholarship, if you think about it. Yeah, no, a lot of the it's imam job is not scholarship. A lot of it's counseling. Your reputation in the community is typically predicated on how good of a public speaker you are. Uh-huh. And so if you're an imam and you're not a good public speaker, it's going to be very difficult to survive in the long run. Now, a lot of Muslims today have issues with imams who have accents and things <clears> like that. But there's simply a disconnect there between their expectations of what the, what a good public speaker is and the, the older generation that has a different expectation of what a good public speaker is. Yeah. You can have someone who's young who has the public speaking abilities of Barack Obama yeah. get up on the mimba and give a chutbah and he thinks he hit home run. Yeah. And to many of the elders in the community, they'll sit through that and they'll say, what was that? Yeah. Right? <laughs> That's true. And you'll have an elder who comes from sort of a foreign country and it's been here a couple of years. And he gives a chutbah, and it is laden with adi'ya. Yeah. And versus poetry. And versus, exactly, right? Versus yeah. poetry. All of that is just enmeshed within the chutbah itself, and the adults mm. come out, and they're very impressed. And they say, we need this person to give chutbahs every single week, yeah. because he's corresponding to our expectations of what a chutbah should be, right? So the audience is too varied to actually get something that everyone's going to be... Well, it depends, right? I, I mean, most most people who are growing up and in the younger generation, right? And younger generation includes people who are in their sort of 30s and yuppies and all yeah. of that, right? Those people tend to complain a lot, but they're actually not very active in messages, right? Yeah, we have a, a number of those types. Of course. I mean, well, they can't complain at all. That's, that's the majority. That that's the majority, right? Yeah. And so those, those people will take their complaints online. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I remember I was, uh, I was sitting in a meeting at one masjid and this is a message where people kept going online and complaining about khatibs and the khutbah attended this past Friday and they'd go on Facebook and, oh my God, he didn't even address Black Lives Matter this past Friday and Trayvon Martin just happened. And, you know, people would come online publicly and just blast the yeah. khutbah from this masjid. I remember attending a meeting at the same masjid and uh, one of the brothers from the masjid said, you know, subhanAllah, we've gone a whole year and not received a single complaint about a khutbah. Oh right? He said, mashallah. We're doing an awesome job. What is right? this, a restaurant? And no, he was, oh he was very pleased. He said, you know, mashallah, people like, yeah, I, I'm with you, right? But the idea is even in, there's no sense of, hey, there's the disconnect isn't even appreciated yeah. or understood by people who are actually running the community. And I see this online a lot of times and people will sort of, you know, when the social media machine yeah. gets going, right? Sort mm-hmm. of the outrage machine. And people get upset against an organization or an institution. What they do is that, They'll make broad public declarations against organizations on their Facebook feed, but they actually won't send an email. To the actual organization. Yeah, Yeah. and it's it's so frustrating because it's the same thing with any political cause. If you cared that much about it, you would invest the same amount of effort and energy you have into writing a Facebook post, into calling your politician, right? Registering a phone call at your local politician's office is going to have a greater effect than just spouting off in Facebook, mm-hmm. although the Facebook post is going to get, you know, there's there's greater edification there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It, it fills sort of a person's... It's public. 
Right. Whereas the that, call is private. Well, it's public. It fills a person's sort of sense of self and importance, sort of the self-importance of yeah. a person is being reaffirmed through likes and people will comment on that and say, wow, you're so courageous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and don't stop doing what you're doing. Yeah. It's like, what, what are you doing? People you're are just, so courageous. You're just writing a post. Yeah. That's all you're doing. <laughs> people are so courageous and the reality of the, the position that they took is that it's in line with the majority. Yeah. How is that courageous? I mean, yeah. going and bashing uh, a little beat up old little masjid uh, run by some <laughs> uncle who actually like has a job and has other things to do in his life. Uh, I don't see how that's courageous at all. It looks like you're beating up on you're, – you're basically bullying a guy who is vulnerable, who doesn't know how to defend himself, and who probably doesn't even know that he's on Facebook being abused right now, right? <laughs> well, well – uh... There are there are instances in our community where you have masjids and Muslim organizations that are objectively really bad, right? We're talking about organizations that are in courts and you have cases of money laundering and that type of stuff. Those are sort of the extreme communities. But aside from that, there's a lot of complaint and sort of just general angst that people have against the community that reflects almost a childlike petulance mm-hmm. against having to deal with people that they just don't like. Yeah. And it's sad. I mean, it's sad to see sometimes where people just have no patience of dealing with other people. And uh, I think about it sometimes, and I actually think that the amount of frustration we see sometimes being expressed online is an extension of the frustration that people have in their own private lives because people are no longer accustomed to dealing with their own family. That's actually true. Because if people were accustomed to dealing with their own family, especially elders in their family, yeah. right? A lot of the issues people have in the masjids in the community is dealing with elders. Mm-hmm. Now, older people in general are tougher to work with and deal with. Yeah. If you've ever had elders in your family or people that got old and reached old age, they are slower, right? In terms of just, they slow down, right? They're set in their they, ways. They, they're set in their ways. Sometimes they can be mean. Right. Sometimes they can be very mean with things that they say. Right? That's just how it is. But you're supposed to have sabr with them. Well, right? this, yeah, you're you're pointing to a good point that this yeah. basic idea that um, if you, with the manners that you have with your mom and dad, yeah. you're going to take seventy five percent of that with yeah. every other elder that you see. Yeah. In the masjid or outside the masjid. Yeah, and you have a hadith of Prophet <clears throat> Right, he's not from us. He doesn't have mercy on our youngers. Right, yeah. that he doesn't have respect for our elders. Yeah. And people see elders in the community, and they'll get so frustrated by their positions or opinions that they take. I remember one masjid. This was a year, maybe two years ago, when sort of the Black Lives Matter thing was really big, and. Um, you know, he was an uncle who was reading the news and things like that, and uh, he had made an announcement, and he said something along the lines of, you know, I keep seeing Black Lives Matter. You know, all lives matter, right? He had said that, yeah. and he's not plugged into the point where he's appropriating a cause, yeah. right? He's not, he's not trying to push out a microaggression. Yeah. He's just an uncle who read something and was reflecting on it himself yeah. and was saying, you know, all human beings matter, yeah. right? And all lives matter to us as Muslims. And some people were just <laughs> ready to they, flip know. out against oh this guy. <laughs> we're just ready to flip out. And I felt bad for the brother. And I know him. Mashallah, he's a very just good uncle. He's not yeah. on social media. He's not following HuffPo no. and BuzzFeed. Yeah. That's not where he lives his life, 
right? That's where I, that's what I want to be when I grow up. Yeah, you just—he probably, you know, he saw <laughs> the news in—you know—he—he he, he actually mentioned in the announcement that yeah. he was reading the newspaper and he saw, oh, which tells news. you where he was at, right? Yeah. He's, the newspaper. Yeah, he saw the Washington Post. Oh, he read this gosh. article and he said, "Wow, how come? <laughs> yeah. How come? You know, there's this, you know, Black Lives Matter thing. Where did that come from, <laughs> right?" And uh, oh, he was just trying to offer. a generic reflection and people were so upset and this is the problem with this community yeah. this is the problem with us you know the muslim community is not willing to own up to its racism oh and we have so much anti-black and all of those points can independently be true yeah but in this case all you had was an uncle yeah it was simply a case <laughs> of your run-of-the-mill uncle making an announcement based yeah. on a news article you read and he's such a sweet brother, mashallah. And I just, I thought, this is nuts. This yeah. is nuts that in some people's minds, it became a real concern. And Oh, yeah. Well, by, to, and by the way, uh, yeah. if you thought people people were old-fashioned in the past, yeah. uh, today, if you're not up to date uh, intentionally, yeah. trying to stay up to date, the yeah. terminology, the what's in and what's out will change so fast, yeah. right? It will change so fast that uh, you won't even know uh, how to talk in the same lingo. I mean, the, the 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 amount of things that are touchy now that weren't touchy before. Of course, right? yeah. People, uh, so people have to be on their toes. I think as a Muslim, yeah. we have to view old age is the precursor of death. So if you can't think about death, because let's say it's too far off, yeah. right? Like spiritually speaking, it's hard to think about death. It's too far off. Then you think about old age. Old age, a lot of things are very similar to death. Yeah. You don't have much power to change because you're too set in your ways. Yeah. Just like in the Akhira, you can't do deeds anymore. Yeah. And your deeds are catching up with you, right? Yeah. So your deeds are catching up with you. And if you couldn't fight bitterness when you're young, yeah. right? You can't fight it when you're old. If yeah. you couldn't fight envy when you're young and anger, you can't fight it when you're old. It catches up to you. So what you invest in youth, and that's why... I always say in our uh, classes and in our halakas that uh, our what we're working for is what are we going to be like when we're old, right? Yeah. And in that, spirituality has to be very heavy when you're old. And how are you going to be treated when you're old is what you perpetuate for the elders now. So if yeah. we perpetuate a habit where all of us are literally uh, um, picking up chairs to seat the elderly, putting them first, well – Young, our young people are watching us do that, right? Yeah. Our kids will be raised to see that as a habit. It becomes a culture. Yeah, there, there's actually an interesting book, Carl Zimmerman. And Carl Zimmerman, he was a sociologist at Harvard. He published a book in the 1940s about family and civilization. Yeah. And so it's a history of the family. Mm. And he talks about how the families evolved through different sort of epochs, yeah. right? So you have sort of the tribal family. And you have the extended family, and you have the nuclear family, and now today, you have sort of the atomistic family. And he's writing this in the 40s when the family wow. structure, from our vantage point, is still very much in place. Uh, nuclear versus atomistic, what do you mean by that? So the nuclear family is a limited family where you talk about sort of your wife, your kids, and that is, you know, dog, picket fence. That's yeah. essentially your family. That's a nuclear family. What do yeah. you mean by atomistic? The atomistic family is you're simply a collection of individuals that cohabit a single location. So there is no necessary relationship between you and the people that you live with that um, that sort of accords upon you any moral, moral responsibility 
on another person. So roommates. And exactly. Well, you'll you'll hear people to ex express notions like this with, well, you choose your friends, you don't choose your family. Yeah. Right. Why do I owe something to my parents simply because you know they gave me birth? Yeah. Right. It's an accident of nature. I, I didn't. I wasn't consulted over them. And if they're not good to me in a way that I'm expecting or that I expect in, even retroactively, right? Now that I'm 20, I can look back and look at the way my parents raised me and, and sort of look at my life as having undergone all sorts of trauma, right? Even if, even if at that moment the parents were just doing what every other parent did, right? This kid needs to get smacked. Yeah, right? <laughs> but But seriously, now you have... You can have children in college who will say, well, especially for Muslim children, right? Muslim children can be raised going to Islamic schools and with parents that did what any responsible parent would have done. And then they look back at their life and they say, well, my parents forced religion on me. Forced religion on me. And because of that, it was a form of spiritual abuse. Right? And that's actually a very common notion today. Atheists are pushing that a lot. They really push this notion of spiritual abuse because they say that children are too young to fully appreciate and recognize the manner in which they're being indoctrinated mm -hmm. religiously. Because so what do they no, suggest to be done? So they, their suggestion is that no one should be sort of um, drawn into a religious community mm -hmm. and they shouldn't be allowed to participate in a religious community until okay. they're at a certain age. So what, and so they've debated ages. Some of them say 16, some say 18, some say 13 post-puberty, but the idea is that when a child is young, they're too young to fully appreciate the decision mm -hmm. that they're making. What and if I view that as an abuse? <laughs> so why is their definition of abuse any more meaningful than what you or me or a Hasidic Jew or a Hindu or a Sikh would consider abuse? Of course, right? From our perspective, it's, it's actually greater than abuse, right? What, for a parent not to raise their child with religion is a volum. Right? But, but how right. would they respond if you say, okay, you define that as abuse. Right. I'm going to turn around and say that not doing that is an abuse. Well, they, so I, I imagine they, they try to up-level it a little bit. And they mm -hmm. say, okay, well, um, they'd say the reason, they, they'd substantiate why they think it's an abuse. And mm -hmm. they'd say that they think it's an abuse because it is embedding a child. Okay, with, so... Within yeah. a certain frame of life and world, mm -hmm. it's it's creating black and white paradigms for them to see other people through. It's getting them bought into certain ideas about the world and themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's not giving them alternate perspectives in a way that is sufficiently and meaningfully conveyed. And so they, they'd say, look, as a person, as a Hasidic Jew, for instance, you believe that your way of life is paramount that the, and that there's no serious ikhtilat here, yeah. right? But... If you take a step back, you have to recognize that everyone views their worldview that way. Correct. And Including the way me. and the way that you can negotiate between competing worldviews is by affording people, especially children, an opportunity to get exposed to multiple worldviews, and then when they come of age, allowing them to choose. And so, what they're actually um, what they're actually prioritizing and prizing is this notion of individual choice. And everyone loves choice today. Choice is the most popular. If, if you have a position, and you can justify it under the guise of choice, people will love it, right? No that's why Muslims, what it is, yeah. That's why Muslims always try to justify themselves through the lens of choice. Hey, we're just making choices here. Islam's our choice. Hijab's my choice. Let's actually choice. go on to that because that's yeah. really important because yeah. um, 
and for and forget the atheist view of ethics because inho they're just yeah. following speculation <laughs> so if you can speculate let, let me speak actually we don't speculate you said uh, the atheist is going to say well i think okay well you think we have certainty that's a big difference that's right. some difference right? right and that's basically uh, and, and for us being a good parent necessitates that a person is teaching their child their religion right luqman mm-hmm. right the first guidance this sort of point of departure for luqman his child is deen yeah right it's don't associate partners with allah right that's the first part of his sort of tutelage yeah. his pedagogy begins with the grounding in tawhid and uh, that's how the anbiya live and that's how we should live as well we should never be apprehensive about teaching yeah. our kids religion and it's interesting because muslims who have bought into the same notion of individualism are actually imbibing some of these same ideas themselves that's and so thing. they'll say they may not necessarily say okay well prayer or ramadan will let them fast because there's a cultural element to it yeah and there's enough there with Ramadan and fasting where everyone needs to get involved. But even practicing Muslims now, they'll say, okay, when my daughter is sort of 14 or something, I'll let her choose whether she wants to wear hijab. Yeah. But I'm not, I'm not going to impose yeah. hijab on her when she's young. And there will be a, a number of other areas like that, right? Yeah. I don't want to force them to become hafid, right? That's so superficial now, yeah. right? Oh, just rote memorization. What's the value, what's the value or benefit in that, right? And so there are all of these things that we view as desirable for children to grow up knowing, learning, and understanding that plenty of parents look at today um, really with a lot of suspicion. Well, what they, what the, the reason they view it as that is because they're making the opinion themselves. When you yeah. look back, if you truly believe in Allah, you truly believe in the Prophet, peace be upon him, yeah. you say, listen, I'm not actually going to decide what's virtuous because it's all relative. Yeah. Well, but I have we have Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Let him decide what's virtuous, right? Yeah. And once Allah tells us what's virtuous, then it, it's virtuous, right? It's yeah. not a matter of choice. It's virtuous. Now, I want to pull a, an analogy here. Yeah. In negotiation, this is why believers will always, in the long run, defeat atheists. For a simple reason. In the, in the art of negotiation, there are some people winning negotiation, some people losing negotiation. And in as the rule number one, is know what you want when you go into a negotiation, right? Do not have any hesitation on what you want and know what you're willing to give up, right? And one of the first things I uh, read in negotiation, the art of negotiation, is that if you go in knowing what you want and knowing what you're ready to give up and the person in front of you does not really know what they want and does not really know what they want to give up, you're going to win. You're going to get what you want. You're going to school them. You're going to cream them. Yeah. And that's the art of When I think about uh, <clears throat> people with belief, yeah. whether it's right or wrong, Hasidic Jews, yeah. they got the line in the sand. Uh, uh, Muslims to an extent, right? We're supposed to be at that, uh, you know, Catholics, anyone who knows what they believe and holds it as certainty, yeah. right? They go, they go to the table knowing exactly what their lines are, right? Yeah. Know exactly what they want, what they're willing to give up and what they're not willing to give up. Whereas... You're dealing with anyone else. There's like, oh, I think it may be. It seems to be. It's yeah. like you don't even certain of what your own game plan is, right? You're not going to win so in I the think, long run. So part of the challenge is that when these issues come up and we actually discuss them with Muslims, we're actually not discussing them in a format that lends itself to a debate. Yeah. And their own 
imbibing of these ideas has not occurred through clear, through any form of evangelism that they would recognize. Mm. Because they've been indoctrinated into a set of ideas through public institutions, through society, and through culture. Mm -hmm. And so when a person's watching a certain set of TV shows, when they're reading New York Times op-ed section, Huffington Post, and all of those types of things, that there doesn't need to be an explicit campaign to convince them of something, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll actually discuss this at times with homosexuality, mm -hmm. because people will say, well, we're just changing our political positions on this. And no one in the community is actually making a concerted, concerted effort to change what the Quran has actually said. And so I'll say, well, okay, well, there are some people who are doing that. Granted, they're a minority, right? Mm -hmm. There are some progressives out there who are making efforts to change what the Quran and Sunnah have to say, and they have far-fetched tatwil that they're working on, and all of that. Mm -hmm. But what's more powerful than that, in the minds of the average Muslim, is the social and cultural authority that this issue now um, carries, right? Mm -hmm. And so when a person walks into stores, or they go into public institutions, when they go through school, public libraries, right? Public libraries, books on display will oftentimes be about homosexuality. Yeah. Or some gay person who came out the closet even for children now, if you go into the children's section of many public libraries, the books on display are, you know, Tango makes three or two or whatever, yeah. right? You'll, you'll have those types of books that are out there about, Alternative you know, and, and they're, you know, a frog who, you know, <clears throat> can't find happiness with any female frogs, but then he has a male frog who he's yeah. best friends with and they just live together in their pond, lily pad, wrapped. It's a very... To people, it's a silly, sort of innocuous book, but there's obviously, there's a campaign yeah. that that book right. is expressing, and there are plenty of books like that now. In the past, there was sort of one keynote, but now there are plenty of them, mm -hmm. and they've won prizes and awards and all of that. And so, obviously, now, granted, people don't read today very much, yeah. so that, that I mean, seeing the, seeing the covers. But, but the idea is that if it's so firmly entrenched in institutions where you can walk into a public library and get exposed to it through book displays, yeah. then it exists everywhere else. Yep. Right? It exists just about everywhere else. There's no major city in this country that doesn't have Pride Weeks, that doesn't have sort of a gay uh, sector or square within the actual city itself. You'll mm -hmm. walk by plenty of shops that um, sort of publicly display rainbow flags. You see that as, uh, you'll see that in bumper stickers. You'll see that in movies, TV shows, the sort of over-representation. And so all of this stuff's being done. And what it does is it, it Again, it sort of indoctrinates a person into a very specific way of viewing the world. And mm -hmm. A person who is witnessing the world through that lens every single day yeah. over the course of years, and now they're going to public school where that is, that's orthodoxy, right? Yeah. That is the position. There actually is no meaningful disagreement on topics like that within yeah. public institutions anymore. Yeah. And so when that's the position that you're going up in and you have your children that are growing up in institutions like that, then... The necessary byproduct of that is that those people will have a very difficult time buying into a religion that says that that the acts that are represented by these identities are morally incorrect. Yeah. Right? That's going to be a very difficult leap for them to make. And just like that, there are a variety of issues that take on that same sort of that take on those same contours. And yeah. so when we talk about hijab or choice or the self and individuals and people the way that people look at family and themselves and the sort of detachment from their own parents their extended families all of that that is all a reflection of people being indoctrinated into a very specific worldview mm -hmm. that has assumptions embedded in them and people 
have a very difficult time thinking outside of that because when you challenge those notions, what you're essentially doing is you're hearkening back to a world that did exist. Yeah. And another assumption that people have is a philosophy of progressivism yeah. that our moment, where we live right now, and where we what we exist within, is the pinnacle of human civilization. This is the pinnacle. This is as good as it gets. Yeah. Right. And everybody that preceded us was deficient in some form or fashion. Mm -hmm. And that is the direct inverse of the Islamic worldview. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right? <laughs> the Prophet said, yeah. the best generation is mine. Mm -hmm. That's my that's the best. And he's talking about uh, morally and spiritually. In every for us, in every conceivable respect, yeah. they're superior. Right? Now some people might say, well, they didn't have the medical technology that we have. Or, okay, well, if we're gonna grant technology some sort of moral value then we have to say, we have to evaluate it objectively as a whole. Yeah. We have to say, what are the positives that technology has introduced into society and what are the negatives, right? And technology is not, you know, people talk about technology being morally neutral, but they're not neutral, yeah. right? That's a very naive view of technology. Mm. Like people who study this space, they'll recognize there's tons of philosophical work that's been done. Plenty of people have written on this. Mm. You know, Jerry Mander, in the 70s, he had, what, five arguments for the elimination of television, yeah, yeah. right? I mean, that was, that was popular work back then. You have Neil Postman, technopoly, technopoly abusing ourselves to death. You have, um, who is it, uh, the medium of the, Marshall uh, McLuhan, McLuhan, mm -hmm. right? Yep. The medium is the message, yeah. right? There's yeah. a recognition that technologies influence the way that people yeah. receive and understand things. And that's totally true. And Postman used to talk about technologies in a very loose sense, yeah. right? And one of the first technology he used to talk about was the, was the clock, mm. right? I mean, he used to always talk about the clock as really? something that had an impact on religion and religious commitment wow. and spiritual commitment because he said that it was a discrete technology. And whereas previously, past peoples used to look up yeah. and oh, look at their shadow and yeah. they'd have, there was a different method through which they would recognize time. When that method and where they took were. your attention away from the worldly and up to the heavenly. And exactly. Now, now people are becoming more and more horizontal. Right? There's less vertical. People are less connected with the world around them. And he said if people fully appreciated what was being done there, would they have openly embraced the clock the way they did? Yeah. He said they may not have, right? Because it's a technology, yeah. right? It's a technology, and there are positives and negatives attached to that. And just like the clock, there are others that are a lot more noxious and yeah. produce far less benefit in the aggregate. I mean, I, and, I, and I have uh, probably most people like this. Yeah. I've never, I'm telling you, never, ever, in my life ever have been in a situation or in a spot where in the middle of the night yeah. or late at night that the stars looked more magnificent than the earth. Yeah. Like I can't think of any single moment where <laughs> I looked up like, whoa, yeah. we are nothing in comparison to that beauty yeah. right? and that majesty and that space and that ma it never happened. You've never right? had that type of reflective I've moment. I've never happened. Right? And the, my first <laughs> moment where I yeah. said, wow, yeah. was... I mean, I grew up going to New York City. Right? Yeah. So we drive from Jersey. There's a point where you pass uh, Hoboken where you cross – there's a bridge. It's a ramp actually. And on this ramp, it's a pretty long ramp yeah. that's taking you to one of the bridges. You see the entire landscape of the of, of New York lit up at night. Yeah. Right? The skyline. If you the wanted skyline. to – that's what it – That the sky has actually become the skyline. Yeah. Like the sky is like uh, something – okay, I, we heard that there's – Places out in Arizona where you could look up and see stars. That's yeah. the max. But what you have is New York City. 
Yeah. I mean, that is so magnificent when you pass by all those lit up buildings. And that's, you know, we now have probably maybe, I might not even be the first generation to have that experience. Yeah, you know? I, th- I think sometimes people look at the uh, current state of the world, yeah. especially in the West, and the sort of increasing rate of religious apathy or spiritual apathy, where you have people who are either religiously disinterested or they just identify themselves as nuns, yeah. like the sort of rise of the nuns, they call it. What's this? I, I'm, I'm not... The nuns, so they're, they're people who won't openly identify as atheists, but they won't identify themselves with the religion, so they're just nothing. And so, oh, none, like N-O-N. Yeah, N-O-N-E, right? Yeah. They're just nuns. They're, okay. they're, yeah. What am I on a survey? I'm nothing, right? Okay. And that's that's sort of the safe place to be because they recognize there's a lot of baggage that calling yourself an atheist carries, and they don't want to be that type of person, but they also recognize all the baggage that being a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim or a Buddhist or whatever carries. Yeah. And so they're just open. So they're just left. They're, 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 <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're, yeah. they're open-minded Right, and that's a very appealing thing for people today. Everyone wants to be open-minded. So right? they're not la ilaha illallah. They're not la ilaha. They're just la. Exactly. Right. right. They're just la. That's now, uh, I want to go back to that thing what you said that you walk in every day. You see certain orthodoxies, secular orthodoxies, and right. of course, supporting um, alternative sexualities and alternative views of gender is an orthodoxy, right? Yeah. And this is no different than growing up, let's say, in Arabia. And seeing that wherever you go, let is honored, Uzza is honored, and idols in any yeah. old society, you have a form some some form of idolatry, right? Yeah. So it's just shifted from a, a physical idolatry yeah. to a principle idolatry. It's like this principle yeah. is what's sacred. Of course. Right? And and I was the other day watching um, something. I won't mention any names or anything, but. Uh, it was a university person, someone who works in the, in the university community, said to a Muslim in a classroom, said, I see that you can differ with your teacher. Like, we're yeah. very happy to see you can differ with your teacher. Yeah. But can you also differ with your revelation, right? Yeah. Now, <laughs> yeah. it be, no matter how you answer it, the correct answer is, why should I accept your assumption yeah. that the ability, my ability to differ with anyone is an ideal. That's the right answer to that of question. Right. And there's an a priori assumption about what revelation is. Because if, I, if what I'm saying is that revelation reflects the word of God, then what value would there be in disagreeing with yeah. it? I mean, if you believe that God revealed this, yeah. then there is no disagreement. Yeah. And, and the guy, whoever says that, <laughs> Uh-huh. Should have no problem with any with that answer, whether you, what you just said and what I said, because is uh-huh. wait a second. If you're saying basically you're happy that I'm, I can differ with my teacher, I can differ with you too. Yeah, I mean, what? I think I think most people's notion of sacredness when it comes to religious scripture is pretty much the equivalent of the Constitution, mm-hmm. right? Where it's a magnificent document. It was written by people who were ahead of their times, and they were enlightened and thoughtful and philosophically connected. But they reflected the shortcomings of their era, and they embedded within the document mechanisms by which it could be it can be improved. And those types of improvements have to be done with a lot of care, and concern, and respect. But it can be amended, yeah. right? It was written for amending, yes. right? Yes. And so you know you you and it has had to be amended at times, mm. and it can continue to be amended. But again in a sort of limited fashion through public debate and negotiation and by people who have spent their lives focusing in that space. And so mm-hmm. people will say, okay, well, 
that's that's how we should view our religious scripture. And they essentially take that same worldview and they graft it onto the Quran yeah. or the Bible. And, well, so part of the issue is that nasq. yeah, you get haqqun nasq. That's yeah. what it is. Well, plenty of Christians have already taken that view, and yeah. it's really interesting because if you look at the way people, in fact, read and examine biblical literature, biblical criticism, a lot of times it feels so. So it's been desacralized, right? Desacralized, right? It's it's they read it and examine it the same way that they're reading and examining Shakespeare mm-hmm. or Chaucer mm-hmm. or anyone else. It's just philology, yeah. right? We're just examining the work and the writings yeah. and the attitude of yeah. attitudes of the author, mm-hmm. and we're going to take a gender-based criticism and a race-based criticism yeah. and all these criticisms we're going to apply to the text yeah. and try to extract from it the biases that are there. Right, because we recognize, or they recognize, hey, the Bible isn't just wasn't it didn't just come down from the heavens to us. Yeah, right? it had to be documented, yeah. and it had to go through all sorts of councils. And they're partly right, right? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. they'll apply that attitude in the Bible. Now, when a person applies those types of attitudes in the Christian community, they get a very limited form of Christianity. Yeah, and there's nothing there that's sufficiently compelling to keep people Christian. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the problem with the problem that a lot of people have had through atheism and unbelief is that it's left them lonely, depressed, and unhappy. Mm-hmm. Because what people recognize, especially today, is that you need belonging. Yeah. People are just dying for belonging. Mm-hmm. People are just dying to belong to something. And, um, you know, the sort of fraternal belonging of a community is yeah. very powerful. I used to, I remember my, my first thought that I had, I worked with an individual, really nice guy who's my manager. And he was in his 50s, and he had kids and things like that. And he didn't believe. He didn't believe. He was essentially an atheist. But he went to church on Sunday. Mm. Uh, not, not consistently, but he'd go on big days and things like that. So and he I, identified with that community. And I asked him why. He said, and he told me, he said, when you get to be my age, yeah. it's very difficult to find friends. And for my kids to find somewhere to go. And for them, he said, look, our church is sort of values. I don't have problems with those values. Yeah. In terms of just raising good kids and upright kids yeah. and you know, everyone in the church is about as committed as the next person. Yeah. And you know, sure, he's like there's some stuff there about premarital sex that I may not care about as much, yeah. right? But he's like, it's not a bad about it's not terrible. And most kids aren't gonna follow it anyways, and if my kid doesn't, I don't really care. Yeah. But the bigger thing is now we have friends and we have a network and we have families mm-hmm. and we have a way in which we can conduct our weddings. And we have a way in which we can give birth to our children, yeah. and we have we have rituals. Agreed that we upon can, stuff. We have rituals that we can participate in, and you'll see this now with atheists, where they're starting atheist churches, and they're tr- starting atheist rituals yeah. and atheist celebrations and secular so they become societies. Pagans. So it's pagans, really. Yeah, th- but, because it. but they need that because yeah. they recognize that human beings have to belong to something. The right? funny thing is, I was talking to someone the other day, and. Um, I was talking to Sheikh Azimuddin of Darus Salaam, a beautiful uh, Jama'a, beautiful brother, and he told me you met him before. I have. I've heard him speak once. He's he's him and his or, his brother and his organization are under the radar. I think they should stay that way. And, but they actually do <laughs> reason being because it protects them, right? Yeah. And they're actually doing real meat and potatoes work, right? Yeah. One of their graduates came out with the seven qiraat. Right. Wow, I mean, what in America? Yeah. Right. So uh, seven qiraat after four years of studying, and uh, amongst other things, so they're completely under the radar. But when you when you see what they're done, it's actual real meat and potatoes work. That's probably more than most other uh, educational organizations have ever done. But I was we were just chatting, and I said to him, when it comes to hedonists and atheists, 
they're actually better off. Uh, and this discussion came up because he has a has to put an eight foot fence in front of around the property so that no one, you know, comes near it and shoots it up. And they were told to do this right by the town. Wow. Okay. So I was saying, atheists and hedonist type of people should actually fill the world yeah. with should want the world to be filled with religious people because they bring stability with them. Yeah. Right, families, communities, localities. The respect for uh, sacred law translates to respect for uh, uh, secular law. Right, respect for everything. So you want them to stabilize the world, and in that world, the hedonist and atheist can actually do what he wants, and the world is safe. Right, if you think about it. So if you were like a hedonist uh, back in the eighties, yeah. right, the world was a lot. Uh, at least your local world, you didn't have shootings here and there. You didn't have this insanity uh, on a regular basis. Now the world that's tipped to a more atheist and secular and godless world, um, you know, the, your basic thing like public safety is something at risk. You know? Right. I mean, so I think part of the challenge is that, so, you know, the notion that you describe, if you look in the past, especially in Muslim civilizations, historically, you mm-hmm. had this cast of philosophers that took a very similar position about religion. Yeah. They said there's some merit to religion in organizing people and getting them to accept and act according to a certain morally upright playbook. Yeah. Right? And that there's value in that. Mm-hmm. So there's a sociological benefit and a moral communal benefit. There's a communitarian benefit overall to religion. Yeah. And it serves its purpose for sort of the lay person, right? They, they were very elitist, right? The sort of armless yeah. host. Yeah. They say, well, if you're intelligent enough and you become a philosopher, you're not, you're not in need of these really childlike, uh, childlike rules. And that's Nietzsche. Right? Yeah, exactly. We, 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 don't ne- we don't necessarily need these same rules to tell us how to live upright, yeah. right? The philosopher can arrive at those conclusions independently through their own, through their own mind, yeah. right? They, they can arrive at those same conclusions. Now, when they were actually saying that, they weren't disagreeing with the rules that religion had in place. Mm. They were simply saying, we can arrive at those rules without needing religion to tell us to get there. I see. We don't need religion to tell us that, you know, fornicating yeah. is wrong. We can arrive at fornicating being wrong through our own sort of intellectual capacity. So they're a type capacity. of uh, yeah. Exactly. Now, the problem today is that the average person, in fact, disagrees with the values that religion purports, mm-hmm. whether it's Islam, Christianity, or yeah. Judaism. In yeah. fact, they see the moral commitments and convictions that are inherent in those faiths yeah. as objectively bad. Yeah. They don't just see them as... This isn't sort of an ikhtilaf. They're not willing to say, well, we're just going to have to disagree on how we live the world. They actively see much of what's in the Quran and Sunnah as bad and harmful. They see it as harmful. And you see this debate taking place everywhere. In Europe, you have countries that are adopting prohibitions around things like circumcision. Circumcision is harmful to a baby. You see it around ritual slaughter. It's harming animals. You're seeing around the spiritual abuse debate. We're harming our children, and we're, we're in fact, sort of, um, we're just handcuffing them intellectually when we allow people to force them into a particular way of viewing the world religiously. And so that becomes a problem. And now that's subject to all of the debates around harm. And so that's harmful. And Muslims, you're not going to allow your child to drink. Well, there's a harm attached to that because you've inhibited their free choice and Mm -hmm. their free election. Women wearing hijab, well, they, they're not able to express their body and their freedom fully and their sexuality and becoming sexy, right? Women are always told, 
that they are fulfilled completely when they're able to feel every woman deserves to feel sexy today. That's what they're always told. Mm. Every woman deserves to feel sexy. No woman deserves to be shamed. Yeah. Everyone should feel sexy today. And that's so superficial. I mean, what does it mean to feel sexy? As if there's nothing higher that a person can achieve in their life. There's nothing greater to aspire towards other than this sort of trivial feeling or emotion, right? But it's a very powerful emotion yeah. in people's minds because, hey, I'm getting attention now. And that's what society has told me matters. And when you've taken purpose out of yeah. life, the only thing left is to feel good. Of course, right? And so people are always driving towards that. People are driving. It's a hit, right? People are driving towards these really short-term <clears throat> drugs, right? This sort of partying attitude, mm -hmm. the entertainment attitude. And that's not new, right? People have always, if you look in the Quran and you look at societies that were destroyed, what did they busy themselves with? Mm -hmm. They preoccupied their time by playing. Yeah. That's yeah. all they did. They played. That's all they do, yeah. That's all they yeah. Yeah. Right? Leave them, just yeah. let them be preoccupied in their play. That's yeah. all these people are going to do. Yeah. Day in and day out. And plenty of people are obsessed with being entertained, uh -huh. obsessed with having their sort of mind preoccupied and not thinking about their own existence, mm -hmm. their place in the world, and what comes after this, and what responsibilities and accountability they have. People yeah. want to live unaccountably. That's what it is. That's, that actually contributes to a lot of the fragmentation we see in families. Mm -hmm. Because people don't want to have responsibility towards their parents. Yeah. Parents don't want to have responsibility towards their children. Mm -hmm. Siblings don't want to feel responsible for one another, especially when they don't like each other. Yeah. And that's natural. I mean, siblings, not every single brother or sister is going to grow up and sort of express all of the same opinions and ideas about the world. You're going to raise your children slightly differently. You're going to have different views and opinions politically, socially. But those things are expressed through a complete divorce. We don't even stay in touch anymore. And the, the right? what you were just saying is the power, the powerful feeling of being connected, being part of something. Yeah. You're paying for it when you adopt responsibilities. That's how you pay for it. So you've, when you adopt the responsibility everyone, and everyone else adopts the responsibility, sure. then you have paid for you being taken care of. I always call when I, uh, when I you know, spend, take some time out to take care of uh, uh, my kids, I always say, well, this is my, uh, my, my cancer policy right here. Like, when I get cancer, who's going to take care of me, right? I'm paying. Yeah, may Allah protect us. May Allah protect us. But like, yeah. when, I get a, when I become an old man in a wheelchair, yeah. uh, may Allah protect us from all that. But uh, even when you just get sick, well, who's going to take care of you? Who's going to have – and you, what are you going to – you're going to hire someone. They have no – but with your kids, it's the memory, right? Mm -hmm. Memory drives people and say, wow, so many good memories, right? Yeah. It drives people to take care of each other. drives people to be with one another. And it also sometimes can tilt a, a decision. Like you never need to pressure – if you're good to someone, yeah. simply being unhappy with a decision. Oftentimes is all it takes. Like I'm not, I'm not saying don't know, but at the same time, it doesn't make me happy this decision that you're about to make. If you have been good to them over 20 years, that should usually yeah. be enough, right? If you raise someone with some feelings, right? Well, well, this is the irony of the world that we live in, mm -hmm. because the world that we live in tells people that what they should embrace is themselves and the individualism and freedom. Mm -hmm. People are free, unencumbered individuals, and they should live with that, yeah. right? There's nothing that is more prized in a liberal society, in a philosophically liberal society, mm -hmm. than freedom, yeah. an individual's sense of their own autonomy and their place in the world. 
And everything that derogates from individual freedom is actually seen as undesirable. Mm -hmm. So marriage is not very desirable. You see marriage rates declining mm -hmm. because people see that as a responsibility that they're not eager or interested in signing up for. And so you either have people who aren't getting married or you have marriages that don't actually entail any real responsibility. So you have open marriages where mm -hmm. people can just have sex with whoever they want. Or you have marriages where people are essentially cohabitating, right? Mm -hmm. It's cohabiting and, you know, we share, we have our independent finances and we're just sharing financial responsibilities, right? We're, all we're doing is expressing ourselves sexually, but there's no higher moral commitments that we're actually agreeing to here, yeah. right? And so that, that becomes a very sort of thin marriage that takes place today too. So, you know, people... A tax marriage. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so what you have are people who are living very independently, autonomously. They're expressing themselves fully according to the dictates of what society has told them is good for them. And yet they're miserable. Mm -hmm. And yet they're absolutely miserable. They're in their 30s and 40s and sisters are hitting ages and women are hitting ages where, you know, they're, they're not able to be... They're no their sort of procreative potential is declining, right? You only yeah. have a certain span of time where you can in fact give birth, right? Mm -hmm. And once that subsides, you know, you can't, after a certain point, so plenty of women are hitting those ages and there's, at that age, they're thinking to themselves, well, I want to have a child. Yeah. But now there's no outlet for me to do it. So sometimes when you go and get artificially inseminated, well, I need the support, but mm -hmm. I have no support structure anymore. Yeah. My family is disconnected from me. That's I have true. no male figure who's willing to help me out here. And, you know, the idea of a male figure, well, who needs a male figure? Why should you need yeah. a man? <laughs> right? So there's all of that. And so people are very lonely today. And there, there's no connectedness. And the place where people would feel connected in past societies and past civilizations was with this extended family. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, people live through their families, right? I mean, the, the extended family, if you look in sort of Muslim societies to this day, you have places where those vestiges are still there, where you have a family home. Yeah. And over generations, what they did was they built extensions on it. As people got married and had yeah. kids, they still they still lived in the same place. Yeah. And they interacted with each other all the time. We, we still have, uh, part of our family still has a family area, area of the graveyard. Yeah. Right? So yeah. everyone's there. There's so-and-so, there's so-and-so. Yeah, so -and -so. that was very common yeah. in Muslim societies. In traditional Muslim societies, that was very, very common. Yeah. And the idea is that family was a moralizing force, mm -hmm. force as well, because you never wanted to blemish your family's name. Yeah. Family's name meant something. Yeah. And everybody reinforced the importance of the family. Yeah. And everybody was collectively responsible for the children in the family. And so for a woman who's a stay-at-home mom, yeah. it wasn't... You didn't feel like you were slaving over your children all day and bored and sitting around the house and you know, you're just burdened with this and hey, you could have a career, but you're part of this huge network of family members who are all doing the same things and everyone, and you're all responsible for these children in a very meaningful way, mm. right? And so you had a very vibrant and active life then, yeah. a very active life that you yeah. were able to live back then. Yeah. And so that was sort of the extended family and, and it's so foreign to people. That's what you know in the Quran when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about people, you know, knowing him the same mm -hmm. way that they knew their own fathers. Yeah. Right? They knew them the same way they knew their fathers. Right? To us, you know, we'll talk about that sometimes and we'll say, well, you know, in that society people were familiar with their fathers. Yeah. But that was the world back then. Yeah. Everyone knew their extended family. The family name meant something. Yeah. Because that's how society worked. And in the 
sort of decline of the family structure, which you've had, which you've had, is sort of the emergence of public institutions mm-hmm. that have taken over the role of family. That's the thing. You needed a dad. You needed the male to actually protect you in the past. Yeah. Today, you don't need that. It, education, protection, careers, health—all these things were being covered and done within the family structure. Mm-hmm. But now you have public education, public schooling. You have public health. You have public retirement facilities. You yeah. have daycare. Everything that we be done in a family traditionally is now being done somewhere else. In fact, less and less is actually being done in a family, right? Yeah. Many, many sort of young professional families now, they don't clean their own homes. They just have cleaning yeah. crews or they have cleaning services that they pay for that come through their homes and clean their homes. Yeah. They don't make their own food. They just eat out and they yeah. order in all the time. Mm-hmm. And so the types of things that brought families together are not not, not actually bringing families together because yeah. no one wants to have to deal with that. Everyone just wants to be busy in their careers working. Yeah. And so the mom's out working and the dad's out And you know, people mm-hmm. who work today, they know that the 40-hour work week is gone. That's, that's a thing of the past. Oh, yeah. People who have full-time jobs are working 60, 70 hours a week regularly. Well, it also comes home. It's in your bed with your of phone. Of course. I mean, 40 email. hours is not... And even if you have a job that's unionized and is strictly limiting you to 40 hours, that's not taking into account commute time. It's not taking into account lunch breaks during the day and additional breaks. Across the course of your day, you're going to spend over 10 hours at work per day. Yeah. And that's five days a week. Mm-hmm. And you're going to spend it unless you live next door to your job. Yeah. And you have zero commute and you're not taking any break during the day. And that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. Nine to five is a done deal. Yeah. Nine to five is done. I mean, that, that happened at some point, but it doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. And so you have families that are very limited and they're very disconnected. And what what occurs is that both the husband and wife grow accustomed to having deep emotional connections and investing emotionally with people that they're not married to, mm-hmm. right? And so your best friends are people that you work with. The people that you feel the most comfortable with. Yeah. People who you feel you can actually confide in. People who understand you. And the reality is they probably do understand you better than your spouse. That's crazy. Because you spend more time with them. That's crazy. And you talk to them more often. And you're in the trenches with them. Yeah. You know, if you're an accountant, you know, year yeah. end or month close and yep. you're working till 10 p.m. and you get the numbers, that's that's what you're doing. Mm-hmm. If you're an HR or payroll, if you're, if you're an IT, you're putting out production fires, whatever. You're, if you're a doctor... Yeah. Right, you're in surgery and you're working long hours if you're in the ER and things like that. And those are the people that you talk yeah. to and that understand what you do. Yeah. Your spouse has no clue about what you do because they've never been in that yeah. space. That's true. And so you feel that this person doesn't understand me anymore. That is huge. And so people get divorced very quickly now because they don't understand each other. They fall out of love mm-hmm. and they begin to really yeah. invest and enjoy spending time with coworkers. Well, that's why the career itself, yeah. the idea of the career. Displaces the, the spouse as the, the number one love. The idea of a career displaces a family yeah. because the career becomes a family. Yeah. Your job becomes a family. Yeah. And this is what companies are offering now. You know, companies like Google, you don't even have to go home. Yeah. They wash your car for you. They'll do your dry yeah. cleaning. They'll make you food three times a day. Yeah. <laughs> and they have chefs there. You can pretty much stay there all day yeah. and have your life taken well, care I of. Well, I think what they've done is they cre- recreated the tribe. Yeah. Right? Yeah. They recreated so, yeah. a type of artificial tribe. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because no one sees that as onerous. No one sees yeah. that as limiting their freedom. Yeah. Because in their mind, they chose that. Yeah. But in one, in what way is there a meaningful choice? Yeah. 
Because where, where can you go to actually assume more of your life back? Yeah. Where can you go to find more time to spend with your family? Right? I it's think, very difficult. It's very difficult. And you'll see this now with companies that are good companies and best places to work. It's not just the core business hours. It's the after hour stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's, hey, we're all going out for dinner to celebrate this. Yeah. And then we're going to go. There's the happy hours and there's the company parties and there's all, all that is happening all of the time. Yeah. And people have all these relationships with these people. And, well, and you know, this is, you know, people talk about marital, marital infidelity. Mm-hmm. Now, overwhelmingly, it takes place at work. Mm-hmm. That's the genesis of it. Yeah. That's the initiation of a meaningful relationship with someone mm-hmm. who's not your wife yeah. or your husband. That's where it starts. And, you know, we'll have this even with practicing Muslims, you know, where they feel affectionate towards someone that they work with. Or they just come home one day and they say, look, I'm not happy in this house. How can I be happy in this house? Look, you're a good Muslim, I'm good, whatever. But at the end of the day, you don't understand me. And all of my interests coincide with people that I work with. And that's what, you know, one of the things that I find interesting is I think, I think for our parents, for many of our parents that came from overseas, right? Mm -hmm. So now I'm speaking to the immigrant Muslims, whatever. But to the Muslims that had parents that came from overseas, they walked into a society where it was very difficult for them to be part of the corporate culture. Yeah, that's true. Right? They very had accents. Yeah. They had no cultural overlap. Yeah. Zero. I mean, for them to be, you know, They were a nice plug-in. In. They were a nice add-on. Like an add-on to the company. That's I it. mean, they fit so many stereotypes yeah. about, you know, they were cooking food at home, bringing it into yeah. the office and smelling up the yeah. break room and all yep. that type of There was just, there was no connection there. With many That's of the true. people, it was very limited, the connections that they could build. And so when they had free time and there was the company part, most of them didn't want to go. Yeah. They actively disliked the stuff. The people didn't want them there either. Yeah. Right? I mean, there was, it was sort of mutual, yeah, right? But from, mutual. from their perspective, there was a sense of these people aren't like us. Yeah. And so where would they go? They'd go to alter, alternative institutions where they could find people like them. Yeah. That's why, you know, in the Desi community, the notion of Dawats was really big growing yeah, up, huge, where you have these Desi parties yeah. all the time, and it's just yeah. Desi families coming together with yeah. food and music, but it was going on all the time, yeah. and Arabs had their thing, and so yeah. everyone had their thing going on. And the masjid, the masjid was a really big social outlet for families to connect. Yeah. So you had potlucks that were very heavily attended, and those were attended by people who needed a place where they could make friends and find connections for their children. Yeah. And today, the average young professional Muslim doesn't need the masjid for that anymore mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because they have friends. Yeah. They have friends at work. Yeah. They have friends that they made at school. They have friends that from their hobbies that they have. If they're doing yoga or they go to a gym or you know whatever they're involved with, they have friends from those places. Yeah. And, and they have virtual friends. Mm-hmm. Plenty of online friends. So you talk about another tribe. A virtual tribe is there. And so yeah. people have plenty of tribes that are friends online that they're connected with and they feel really close to. And so, you know, the, what drove a lot of our parents to the masjid beyond just, you know, the carryover of Dean was also the fact that they felt out of place yeah. here. Yeah. They felt out of And there was actually a virtual feeling out of place because it actually drove them into the masjid yeah. from it our was, perspective. It was a good accident. It was an accident, accident but it absolutely. ended up with a good result. Absolutely, right? But for people in our generation, there is no accident like yeah. that taking place. One of the things that you mentioned earlier is something that I think people should be careful of is the language of choice is when you couch something in the language of choice, you are basically saying something is good if it comes through you, right? That individualism. And that is a very basically Renaissance enlightenment and Renaissance idea that recenters the human 
at the center. All right, awesome. from re having recentered the creator, uh, everything around the creator. So whatever is the creator's choice. So the dalil, the yeah. evidence in our world is what God and His Messenger said. The evidence, the source of evidence, the usul in the secular world, humanist-based uh, uh, world, is your personal choice. Yeah. Right. So that's why one guy uh, had a, uh, a really clever turn on this. And he now couched and he says, basically, what about moral identity? The idea of a moral identity. Yeah. So everyone's got an identity. Your, your morals are also a type of identity, right? So yeah. uh, he's trying to couch it in this to make like morality, what you believe is right and wrong, that the only way that the secular person will or the, the humanist uh, uh, leaning uh, uh, ideas or, or person who views the world that way is that the only way to couch it is to couch it through that this is my identity. These morals are my identity. That's the only way he'll like back off. Yeah, and some, they might back off. And I, I think a lot of them would back off, but at the same time, I think, I think there are trade-offs to the notion of a moral identity. Because the language of identity is very fluid, yeah. very plastic. Yeah. So people have a racial identity, they have a sexual identity, they have all sorts of identities in one part of their identity today now. You know, we can add moral identity there, yeah. right? We can add spiritual identity. We can add any number of identities. I, they there. will. They will only accept. They will accept anything if it uh, comes from you. Yeah, if it then, doesn't, if you claim that it comes from a source outside of you. Yeah, if, if right. you package it in the language of identities. Yeah. Right. But identities. I mean, number one, we don't see. I mean, what is a moral identity? Yeah. Right. What What does that actually mean? Yeah. I mean, can we divorce a person from their identities in that way? Well, they'd say no. The same thing with racial identity. Can I divorce myself from who I am racially? Yeah. Well, all these things are sort of coming together and being coupled together to comprise an individual. And we have to sort of negotiate between competing identities. Whereas for us, it's like, no, we don't view our religion as identity. We view it as who we are intrinsically. We yeah. see that as de definitional, definitional to everything else. Yeah. And whatever I other identity exists, it's subordinate to that. And you're right, sort of the Enlightenment notions, you know, Locke is the big figure here when it comes to freedom. And plenty of Enlightenment philosophers have it. You know, Rousseau and all of them spoke about freedom and the individual and so the unencumbered self and all of that. I mean, that, that was a big, a big part of liberal philosophy. Um, do you, what do you know about Ted Bundy? Ted, I don't know anything about Ted okay. Bundy. So he basically read all these guys. Okay. And his idea was that yeah. killing people is yeah. my source of pleasure. Yeah. And what is the difference between hunting humans and hunting animals? Yeah. Like hunting animals is okay. Right? Yeah. Well, why can't I hunt humans? What's the difference between killing a pig, killing a hog, yeah. and killing a human? Right. <laughs> well, he it. was a philosopher. He's got a fan club. I recently yeah. made a. Uh, he's got a fan club uh, online. Yeah. Right. Uh, people, of course, anonymous. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Well, that's that's sort of the fulfillment of uh, that's the fulfillment of Hobbesian yeah. philosophy because Hobbes said that unobstructed that human beings will devolve into a state of complete and utter chaos, yeah. and they'll kill each other indiscriminately to achieve their own ends because yeah. people are just human. Their instincts of they're instinctually driven to drive to work towards what is going to give them immediate pleasure, and there's nothing that can stop. The them only reason that. we have any peace, and this yeah. is what Nietzsche said, is because there's still enough yeah. for the party to continue. Yeah. As soon as the resources shrink, yeah. right, that's where the real test is going to be. Yeah. Right. When the resources shrink, yeah. How resource will he... scarcity. Yeah. Well, well you know, the, so getting back to sort of the freedom issue. Well, you know, people will ask, well, Muslims will ask, they'll say, well, what's the problem with freedom, right? Why, why is that such a big issue to us? And you mentioned part of it. It's the recentering of the individual in lieu of God. 
it's part of it, but it's also, it actually runs in direct contradiction to what Islam is. Mm-hmm. Right? Because Islam is not freedom, Islam is Islam, it's submission. Yeah. Submission. Submission is the direct opposite of just mm-hmm. living a free life. Right? You've submitted yourself to something. Yeah. And um, you know what we're supposed to drive towards as individuals, and what we're supposed to work towards is the state of ubudiyah, that mm-hmm. we become an abd of Allah subhanahu wa taala, that we're slaves of Allah. And that's an honored position. It's an honorific. If it's we receive that, that, of course, the Prophet sallallahu in the Quran, when he's referenced in a way that that is distinguished, it's through the label abd. Subhanallahi asrabi abdihi. Layla min al Masjid al Haram ila al Masjid al Aqsa alladhi barakna hawla. Right that. When Allah speaks about the Isra Mi'raj, He says all praises to the one who sent his abd, mm. his slave, on this journey, Subhan. right? And then you have, Alhamdulillah, ladi anzala ala abdihil kitab, right? That all praises to the one who sent his abd the book, that that is a honorific, that that title we view when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala referred to the Prophet mm. as abd, it is immense to us. And it's only going to be immense to someone who understands the power of Allah and of the beauty course. of Allah. I mean, even the Prophet said the best names a Muslim can choose mm. for their children Abdullah. Yeah. Abdullah and Abdurrahman. Yeah. I mean, a person's recognizing yeah. their complete servitude, enslavement, enslavement to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to the Creator. It only takes appeal, gets appeal, when right. people understand Allah, who, who, His power and His beauty. And right. that's what something we've been talking about for a while back is that. We have to recenter yeah. that nothing in the universe is more important. Yeah, than, I mean, than Allah the Prophet Sallallahu in one of his uh, one of his letters, right? Nabi said, I can't remember who, maybe Firaqal, but he said, "Aslim Tuslam." Yeah. Right. Submit, you'll be safe. Subhanallah. He didn't say Aslim. Tafrah. Yeah, Tafrah. Like you submit and you'll become free. Yeah. Or you submit and you'll, you know, it was submit and you'll be safe, right? Because that's that's what a person's doing in Islam. Yeah. Right? They're consigning themselves to a certain type of life, and they're recognizing that in that, in that, they get fulfillment. In mm. that, they find joy. Yeah. Right? But that's where a person finds happiness and joy, yeah. fulfillment. It's through. Slavery to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's through ubudiyah and worship and all that. And when a person is just ingratiated in a life of choice and freedom, it actually runs directly counter to that. Well, I was talking to Daniel the other day, and we yeah. have my wrap up in two minutes here, but no uh, one of the things he was talking about some modernist ideas. Yeah. And I brought up the point, and, and he continued it. <laughs> and I was like, wait a second, Let, let's just uh, zoom out of the university a little bit. And this has always been my point. Let's zoom out of here. Why are we stuck in this one arena, right? Yeah. I mean, zoom out. Let's look at way of life, yeah. right? What can they offer? And that's why you'll never see a big family picture yeah. of uh, a modernist and a secularist and the grandpa, grandpa modernist, grandpa secularist, <laughs> little baby secularist, right? Generations. It's never going to happen, right? Yeah. It will never happen. So yeah. the, the project may gain momentum over the ages. However, the individuals lose at the end of life. Like the, so the sec, the, the Kemalists, for example, are yeah. done. They're done. Like secularism is still existing, but their version is done and they're all alone, uh, uh, you know, living lonely, getting old and uh, old age, lonely and decrepit and life has moved on beyond them. And even the new secularists have moved past them. 
No, that's right. that's a great point, and I think that some people don't <clears throat> recognize the temporality of what's sitting in front of them. Yeah. Some people are so imperiled by mm. the sight of Trump, yeah. for instance, and there are all sorts of religious compromises they're willing to make because Trump's in office, not recognizing, taking a step back and saying, well, there's another election in two years. <laughs> there's, another, there's, a, there's going to be another election in two years. I have never election. understood this and, paranoia. And, and there's going to be another president in six years. And I'm not dismissing the fact that yeah. there are major political issues that people should fight on behalf of and all of that. But the idea is, look, as long as, you know, as long as we're here, there's, you know, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala means for this country to be stable and you know, subsist in its current political arrangement, then there's going to be another president yeah. and there's going to be another candidate that you hate. And there's going to be, there are going to be more positions that arise that may seem to run counter to our political and civic interests as a community. And we have to become somewhat resilient to that. And every single time one of these issues shows up, we just can't crumble. Yeah. I mean, when, in the evening when Trump got elected, elected, some people were responding as if it was the day of judgment and, and citing, you know, Yom al and sort of eschatology, yeah. right? All of that, it's all insane. of those ahadith and ayat were coming up and people were talking about jihad. I mean, people were just That's unraveling, true. unraveling. And some of those people have the gall to turn around and say, this is how the Muslim community should yeah. should build a vision for itself. I said, well, you can't, can't stay stable yeah. through a single election, you know? I mean, I... <laughs> relax, I, take it, <laughs> relax a little bit, you know? Yeah. Have, have some... Demonstrate some discussion, you know, to try to think about things through a bigger picture yeah. and say, well, okay, look, we recognize that what's in front of us politically, we need to have a political program that we're working on. We have things that we're working towards. But to your point, people have to have a long-term vision. Yeah. And I'm sure that people who are living in the 1920s thought that socialism and communism... Was it? Was it? Absolutely, <laughs> right? I mean, there, there's an interesting book, Tarif uh, Khadidi. It's Portraits of Muhammad. And it's about the Prophet and he has one section on it that's a very interesting read. And it's called Contemporary Depictions of the Prophet. Mm -hmm. I, I believe it's this paraphrasing something along those lines. And he writes about how the Prophet is reconfigured according to modern paradigms of the world. Mm -hmm. And so the Prophet is now a capitalist. Okay. Right? And the Prophet is an e emancipator, mm -hmm. right? So he's an emancipator according to you know, 20th and 21st century ideas around yeah. emancipation and the Prophet is a woman's rights activist. Mm -hmm. And he's everything put together that people want in a, he's a, he's a, you know, he, he counters racial prejudice and he's an anti-race, yeah. you know, anti-racism sort of, you know, uh, parader and, yeah. and all of that. He's all of those things brought, brought together. He's a social reformer, yeah. a cultural reformer, and religion becomes a very small part yeah. of his theological program. And he actually juxtaposes that against the way that traditional books of Sira were written. Mm. And he talks about how Ibn Hijam, Ibn Ishaq, and these sort of Ahimamullah, and you, you go back and read these books of Sira, and they just read so dispassionate, just encyclopedic almost. Yeah. You know, they were not interested in trying to present the Prophet in whatever positive light they thought was necessary mm. according to their times, because they recognized, you know, those are just subjectivities, and yeah. subjectivities can change. And the way that the Prophet should be portrayed is in a way that is authentic to how he lived. And we're just going to yeah. put here a bunch of reports together, mm -hmm. and you, make, you you draw the conclusions, and scholars have to teach this and all of those things. And so he has, he has really interesting quotes from some scholars that had <clears throat> written about the Prophet in the early sort of 20th yeah. century, 
making the Prophet into a socialist yeah. and into a communist. Yeah. Right? And, and they, they championed the companion Abu Dhar. If you and, yeah, and, and it's yeah. so interesting now because those people just two decades ago, literally, I mean, this is our lives, right? Just actually a decade ago, probably, yeah. right? Even after 9 11. So many Muslims were down on the idea of riba being atavistic and outdated and anachronism and not compatible with the modern world. We have modern economic orders. We have countries that have GDPs and GNPs and complex economic structures. Why are we still holding on to this sort of old notion of riba yeah. and gharar and all these Islamic norms around economics and financial ethics, right? So there was that. And there were all these people saying, no, Islam is free market. And it's very limited when it comes to the way in which it impedes the mm. marketplace. Laissez-faire and all that, that. That's what people were taught growing up. So all these people were gerrymandering what Islam had to say into yeah. those norms. Mm. And now, just a decade later, we have we just had a presidential candidate who was arguably, easily, forget arguably, easily the most popular candidate yeah. amongst millennials mm -hmm. that openly identified as a socialist. Yeah. Right? Bernie Sanders was an open yeah. socialist. Yeah. And now socialism's in vogue. Oh, yeah. And now Muslims are pushing towards the <laughs> single payer yeah. and universal health care. That's yeah. where all of them are. And so now socialism's not a bad word yeah. anymore. Yeah. And now people recognize the marketplace has to be regulated. Because yeah. if we don't regulate a marketplace, well, an unregulated marketplace isn't a fair marketplace. It's going to get you a 1%, 1% exactly. and 99%. Right? Yeah. So now there's a recognition that when things are just free and unobstructed, it doesn't yeah. necessarily render results that are in the best That's interest true. of society. And so, so you're just to... running behind one ism yeah. to the next ism. Exactly. One ism and, to the and next. And it's so funny because these are people who were just a decade yeah. ago pushing the capitalists and stuff yeah. are now just, they've totally flipped their ideas on their head, yeah. right? They're now socialistic, right? In certain areas, right? Where it's acceptable, they've yeah. adopted socialistic norms. And they still have not given the time of day to what Islam has to say. Yeah. Right? And now, plenty of people, you know, when so financial collapse and all those things happen, now they're willing to say, hey, maybe we should start looking at riba yeah. as a serious problem. Uh, right? Uh, and, and these... Some of them have done that. Some yeah. of them have said, hey, maybe we need to start thinking. And it's, well, duh. And all, all, <laughs> these, ex all these attempts to explain the universe and explain the world yeah. uh, end up, you know, if it's something neutral, fine. But if it's something on how to live life and the meaning of life and oh. what and how things should be done legally, yeah. uh, these end up being little mats. And if they get something right, it's accidental, right? Or it's a little mat, and there's one nur, and you're going to be jumping around from one darkness to the next, yeah. right? I like mean, just look at the modern history. It's yeah. just like one ism to the next, and each right. ism is fighting the next ism. And well, then what makes the next ism right? Well, one yeah. thing that's certain is it's going to change. Course, Whatever yeah. for uh, when it comes to fe uh, feminism, you have waves, right? Yeah. So the first wave, the people in the fourth wave don't even identify with you in the first wave, yeah. right? Uh, they might even criticize. Like Black Lives Matter activists, actually, some of them are really down on Martin Luther King, right? I mean, he's like at the forefront for how many decades, and then all of a sudden this group comes along, or some people from them, yeah. and they actually look down on him, right? Course, yeah. So. All of these isms, and whenever you have like a man-made idea to telling us how to live, the only thing certain about it is that there are two things certain about it. Number one, it's going to be outdated very soon. It's going to be thrown in the trash eventually, right? Yeah. whether now or later. Number two, it can only eventually, it will resort to impressing itself on people by force.
Yeah. Right? By use of force, whether it's peer pressure or some type yeah. of force. So there's the hard power of the state and then there's the soft power yeah. of society and things like that. But, you know, it's interesting the Martin Luther King note. A lot of people, there, some people have written about this where if Martin Luther King was <clears> transplanted <throat> to our era today, yeah. most social justice activists would actually disown him mm-hmm. and not want to deal with him because yeah. by modern standards, he's a religious zealot. Yeah. And modern liberal social justice mm-hmm. activism allows for religious activism but only when religious activism actually is a um, is subordinate to it or is an accessory to the movement, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, someone like Cornel Watts yeah. can come off as a very religious figure, right, mm-hmm. and purport to be religious and express full Christianity and prophetic movements and all of that. But it's only because his notion of Christianity is very limited, yeah. and none of his morals are informed by Christianity. Mm-hmm. He can rail against transphobia and all these types of things. Yeah. And he's still, to a lot of people, Cartan Christian because his Christianity is the Christianity of overthrowing oppression and injustices, yeah. and that's what Jesus' message was, and it, that's that's what he's made his religion yeah. into. And plenty of Muslims will make their religion into that when they're in social justice programs as well. Yeah. You know, my understanding of Islam is to overcome oppressions that are existing in the world. And shirk, my notion of shirk is whiteness, yeah. and white privilege is the modern shirk. Forget shirk, yeah. shirk, <laughs> but that's oh, but that gosh. but that's what shirk is to people, right? So all of these things are being done, and it's to your point, it's very fast. Yeah. All this language changes, and it happens so quickly. You know, I think about this sometimes with women's dress, and we we're almost at a point where we're going to hit an inflection where there's nowhere else to go. <laughs> there, there's just nothing. Else. There's no way to get more promiscuous. Yeah. You know, barring just nudity, well, right? Yeah. And so, if you think about fashion waves, well, maybe the next wave is going to be more modest. You never know. Yeah. And once the fashion becomes more modest, yeah. plenty of Muslims will come out and say, we knew being modest yeah. was better for everybody. Yeah. And there will be studies out about mm-hmm. how modesty reinforces a person's that's, sense a of self. A lot of that's in. A lot of that's in. And helps people feel about better about themselves. Yeah. Once it can be packaged along those lines, people don't realize these studies are ideological. Mm-hmm. All of these studies are ideological. Yeah. If a person follows transgenderism, transgenderism in the 90s was broadly recognized as a psychosocial disease. Yeah. That when a person was gender dysphoric, right, it was a problem. It was a psychological issue. And this yeah. was orthodoxy back then. If you read studies, just sort of studies that were done in the academic space on transgenderism, it was done through that lens, right? Ray Blanchard, and he had this notion of autogenophilia that's very, you know, all the transgender people really hate it, but yeah. it carried a lot of weight back then. And there were studies that were done outside of Blanchard, but Anne Lawrence and others, where they, they compared um, transgenderism and the desire for a person to have genitals removed with people who desired um, to have limbs amputated. Mm. And they found a lot of similarities between those two groups. Wow. A lot of similarities between those two groups, psychologically, socially, until even sort of brain function and things. All of, because people were willing to actually look at things through that lens. Yeah. But now... It's being viewed through a different lens. And so all the studies and all the investment is going towards a prefabricated conclusion. Yeah. Right? And to the extent that they can actually generate that conclusion, they're going to work towards mm-hmm. it. That's a great point. They're going to work towards yeah. it. And sometimes you, you run against limits, right? Yeah. The gay gene movement has run against the limit where, hey, we can't just make up a gene yeah. and fabricate <laughs> results. Yeah. But to the extent that they can actually produce results that talk about individual happiness, to the extent that they can talk about freedom, you know, Whatever they can do, if they can present people who are open to or 
our embracing of homosexuality is morally correct, as being more intelligent, IQ-wise. Yeah. They can they can do all of these things. They're going to do it. Yeah. They're going to produce as many of these studies as they and, can. And they and, produce the same in entertainment. So they're going to go look course. for a hidden a character, someone out there who was gay, and make a movie about it, right? Of course, right? And so, I mean... So there, create a history. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a history <laughs> around it, and then there's there's a movement around it, and then there's the portrayals, because now you need to normalize it. So it just becomes a part of everyday society where you watch TV shows, and then they're the voice of reason. Yeah. And everyone else is a buffoon. Yeah. But they're the voice of reason. Yeah. And they're very intelligent. I mean, it's and then, it's and then, no and, different than an idol. Of course, and you have varied depictions and all that, and so the idea is that they can advance their ideas of the world through everything else, through culture and society and entertainment and sports even. Sports is unavoidable now. You know, there was a time, I remember when I was growing up, I started watching sports. I would watch ESPN because especially when you start becoming more religious, it's the only outlet. It's the only outlet that you can just watch mindlessly, have some fun, entertainment, without being subject to controversy yeah. and inappropriateness, right? I can just watch football or basketball or baseball or whatever. I can just yeah. watch it, just follow stats and all that type uh-huh. of stuff. But now sports has become a hotbed for politics. ESPN is so political, it's ridiculous. It's a hotbed for politics. And, yeah. and the actual leagues themselves have to take political stances. That's true. And politics are constantly coming through there. And some of those political discussions are important. And, you know, Colin Kaepernick was the man behind Cap, right? And so there's sort of the race stuff that's going on there. But there are others as well. The gay rights movement is being pushed there. Trans stuff is being pushed through there. All of these things are happening there as well. Uh, The wars. Of course. I mean, every national anthem, is it's a veteran, has to be there. Of course. So you've got to support the wars. Of course. And so there, there are all sorts of ideas that are being broadcast and advanced or pushed back through yeah. sports. And so sports is no longer politically neutral anymore. Yeah. People say, oh, we want politics out of, yeah. out of sports. Well, you can't get them you out of politics. Them. You can't get it out of That's actually, anymore. to me, considered one of the curses uh, uh, that, that we're suffering. We're yeah. suffering a curse where you can't get away because uh, you can't get away. For sometimes uh, reasons of injustice and sometimes other reasons, but you just cannot get away from this stuff anymore. Yeah, they, it's embedded life. It's in your workplace. It's in your sports. It's in your entertainment. And you can't get away from it. Well, they speak about today the sort of um, that individuals have an inflated <clears throat> sense of autonomy. Yeah. That people think they're they are independently minded in ways that they typically are not. Yeah. And that most people are actually very predictable when it comes <laughs> to the types of positions that they yeah. have. Yeah. And they'll talk about this in elections, yeah. where forty or fifty percent of society will identify as politically unaffiliated. Yeah. But where the sort of percentage of people that are actually in play that need to be persuaded and are genuinely open to going and changing their vote are three to four percent. It's literally three to four percent. And that is who politicians from day one are working towards. And it's typically in swing states. We need to win that three to four percent. And so it's, you know, Iowa and Ohio and there are a couple of states and whoever wins those wins the election nine times out of 10. Right. It's very just based on the electoral college and everything else. But it's a reflection of what people know. Well, California, we know how they're going to vote. It doesn't matter if they identify as unaffiliated. It's it's obvious. And in fact, the predictability of human beings is becoming more and more apparent through technology Mm -hmm. and machine learning. You can go on Amazon and Amazon knows what you're interested in, what you're going to buy. Yeah. Right? People who think that they're so unpredictable will go on there and they'll have (laughs) their product for them. People's opinions on issues 
are so obvious, yeah. especially many many millennial Muslims. You talked about taking safe opinions, yeah. right? Where what a Muslim thinks about a partition in a masjid, yeah. or what a Muslim thinks about hijab, or what a Muslim thinks about anything within or religion, marijuana. or how how marijuana, yeah. or how a masjid should be organized. Oh, yeah. we need we need places that are more community center focused. That's not an that's yeah. so unoriginal. <laughs> it's so trite yeah. and overdone, yeah. and it's never subject to scrutiny. But hey, that's the that's the prevailing yeah. idea. And it's in vogue, and it's cool, so everyone just repeats yeah. it over it mindlessly. <laughs> and, and in so many people's minds, it is the enlightened idea of the world. I, I remember, we can't believe that people have not thought of this. <laughs> and I know you think that you just thought of this originally, yeah. but you recognize that that is orthodoxy today. Yeah. Everybody in your age range, everyone in that group has this view. And what I'm asking you to do is consider the problems with that idea. Yeah. Right. What I'm asking you to do is think. Okay. What are the what are the negatives? Are the are you willing to accept that there may be negatives yeah. if you turn your masjid into a rec center? Yeah. <laughs> right. Seriously. If your masjid becomes a rec center, are there possible negatives? Yeah. Well, if we think about it dispassionately, absolutely there are. There are trade-offs, and we have to think those things through. Do we want to make our masjid into a rec center? Yeah. What happens to the spiritual ethos of a community like that? Mm. How do you maintain that? How do yeah. you sustain it? If people are just accustomed to coming there to play sports yeah. or racquetball or yeah. use the gym, whatever, right? It's just another facility now mm -hmm. to them. What happen? I mean, what happens to people's sort of sacred space? Where do we teach? How do we teach? All yeah. of those things. You know, we talked about the clock being a technology that has yeah. assumptions embedded in it. Well, everything does. You know, podcasts. What yeah. are the trade-offs of a podcast, right? What are the trade-offs of becoming a social media figure and trying to use that as a platform to evangelize and broadcast ideas? These things have to be thought through. These things have to be thought through. And when people object or think about ideas or push them out there, well, plenty of the ideas they're pushing, they have not thought through fully. They have not given serious thought to it. Well, it's, they're depending upon the consensus. Of course the they're The temporary dependent. social consensus. Of course, right? And so, you know, they, they're thinking, well, we make this change and it's going to usher in an era of mass religious yeah. commitment. Yeah. Well, okay, let's take a step back. So the rec center idea. If we change our message into rec center, the idea is it is going to usher in. It's going to be where that community is now going to be more accessible to people in their teens and 20s because those people feel alienated from the community. Yeah. Well, let's take a step back. Why do they feel alienated from the community? Okay. Are there things that can be improved upon? So there may be reasons that are valid. They feel alienated from the community because some communities are genuinely more hostile towards youth than a youth presence, and they're not patient with youth that may not fully be there religiously. That may be part of it. There may be other reasons that they feel alienated from it simply based on their lack of religious commitment and mm -hmm. devotion. And the idea is, okay, if they're not religiously devoted, and, they've not, and they haven't grown up in a masjid, and they feel disconnected from their religion, well, the solution to that isn't creating or just watering down our religious spaces yeah. so that there's no spirituality there. Because what's going to happen is that what actually gives people meaning is that spiritual commitment, yeah. is that servitude and slavery to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yeah. And when those people want to get committed, they're going to have something of meaning that mm -hmm. they enter into. Mm -hmm. And if our way of getting them to come in is just to play sports, well, the day that they find a good basketball game well, at a rec exactly center yeah. or outside on the street, <clears throat> their commitment to the community is done. So it's actually see. not building it's not yeah. building them religiously, it's just getting them in the door. Yeah. Right? It's just getting them in the door. And there's a lot of loss 
that they've incurred because now you have a space where, you know, all of those things that people get, you know, I think about this when I was growing up and with my parents, with my dad, and when he took us to Salat al-Jum'ah, especially as a kid, I don't remember a single khutbah from when I was young. Yeah. I can't tell you what a single khutbah was about. I don't know. I, I'm sure perhaps there are people out there who think back, and I remember I was 11 years old attending the khutbah, and the khutbah gave an awesome khutbah. Yeah. That's rare. Most kids that are younger are just following the program of their parents. Mm-hmm. But what I do remember, what I remember when I was young, is what Jum'ah was like. Mm. I remember waking up early. I remember doing ghusl. I remember my mom ironing clothes. Yeah. I remember dressing up for Salat al-Jum'ah. I remember walking into the masjid. I remember people sitting down and reading the mushaf and reading yeah. the Qur'an before the khutbah started. I remember after the khutbah praying sunnah. I remember coming home and we had a meal. I mean, that's, that's what I remember Salat al-Jum'ah. Yeah. So what you learn from is the environment. The, yeah. the environment of a community. Yeah. Right? That's what you learn from. Yeah. And... It instills in you what it means to be a religious person and what it means to be a spiritually committed person, right? But when your communities have just sort of neutered themselves and yeah. sized themselves from all of that, when all of that has just been ripped off community and you become this just a just a building, yeah. right? When you're just four walls in a place where a guy gets up and tries to give a hip or entertaining talk, yeah. and everyone loves the talk because they were entertained for half an hour. Yeah. But what's the benefit of being entertained for half an hour? Yeah. If it's not going to result in anything substantive. Yeah. yeah. If it's not going to result in me doing something. If it's not going to have qala Allah. If it's not going to have qala Rasul there. If we're not talking about Allah and His Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Right? If you're, not, if you're not bringing people to the dhikr of Allah. Fas'aw ila dhikrillah. That's what you're supposed to be going to. You know, then, then to me, there's, there's a net negative there. Yeah. Right? There's a net negative. And so, you know, or pe- people have to be conscientious. Okay, well, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe there's ways to do that. But we have to think these yeah. things out. And we have to start weighing pros and cons. And most people don't. Because what happens is there's a narrative that gets established. We need more of this. We need, you know, people say this. We need more Muslims in politics. Yeah. To what end? Well, they, uh, well, why, why do we need more Muslims what, in politics? What are, what, what are we trying to accomplish? One of our teachers used to say, if you want more Muslims in politics, uh, go back to Karachi. They're almost in there. <laughs> <laughs> Look at the results. Of course. The well, Muslims and the voters. <laughs> well, that's a fair argument. And then there's, there's a, well, what type of Muslims do we want in politics? Yeah. Right? We don't just want any Muslim in politics. Yeah. Right? We want a certain type. We it's want like Muslims a, that are, and we want them to be honest, and we want them to be upright, and we don't want them to succumb themselves into and the, the, and the, summary, the sort of wretched swamp yeah. of political, you know, and, Trump swamp, right? Then, we don't want that. We don't want them in the midst of that. And the summary is, as the Prophet, peace be upon him, said, oh. don't, be a, don't be a follower, just yeah. to whatever the trend is, and that's what you're following, and that's, that's the type of uh, thing that's, that's coming through, and what you're saying is we're just predictable followers, right? And if you want to be a predictable follower, well, followership is good if you thought through the roots, yeah. right? When it comes to sacred matters, because the roots, you know what the roots are, and in that respect, it's good. But when you're following people who are in, in yeah. that they're just following speculative ideas that might work, might not work, there's a big difference between following the sacred, which is a guaranteed result, and following a speculation. And that's a big difference. That's some difference, right? Right. So we're coming up on some time. So uh, let's wrap it up here. Uh, Mubin, has been really great to have you. It's critical. And actually, it's horrible that uh, you're moving from Philly. I thought you were like one hour away. But you're moving down to Maryland. But 
Khair, alhamdulillah. Next time, every time you're up, you send me a text message, inshallah. Wow. And, inshallah. and we'll do this. Uh, I'll be more than happy to do this again, inshallah. inshallah. So, jazakumullah khair. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Nashadu an la ilaha illa anta. Nastaghfiruk wa natubu ilaik. Mubin, do you have any place where you put your work? Your Facebook yeah. page? Yeah, I've, I've, uh, I've deactivated it for Ramadan. Okay. Uh, even though it's Shabbat. Inshallah. Inshallah. <laughs> In inshallah after but Ramadan. your Facebook is mainly where your essays are found. Yeah, I mean, I publish them on different platforms. The mainly day, like, Muslim Matters? Mainly been Muslim Matters, although I've done stuff outside of Muslim Matters. So okay. just right, follow, I'll, I post it there. All right, so, so we just look up, uh, just Google his name or go to Muslim Matters and find it. Inshallah, yeah. stuff is really strong. Uh, um, it's uh, uh, very well written, thorough, thorough stuff. Oftentimes you need to print it. I need to print it out. When, whenever you, when you write something, I need to actually go to the printer and print it out uh, and use a pencil and everything because it's serious stuff. So um, unlike my, my own style is I try to reach the common man, right, who's reading something on his phone. Um, but your stuff is stuff that uh, needs to be printed and, and, and read and uh, with a pencil in hand. That's how I do it anyway. Yeah. Yeah, so, Allah accepts from us. Yeah, may Allah accepts from us. And uh, uh, good to see you. Inshallah, we'll do it again next time. Oh,